with all that administrative data. Please turn with me to Genesis 34. As I mentioned to you, we are teaching consecutively through chapters of the Bible, and we are now going through the book of Genesis, and we find ourselves in Genesis 34, a chapter which, frankly, is a little bit icky and difficult, and uh, it's one that if we were prone to skip the, the tough stuff, we would, we would skip this one for sure. But we can't do that, and I feel like if we will take our time through it thoughtfully, that we will glean some very important truths for our lives, allowing ourselves to look inside to see where we have similar tendencies, propensities toward the sins of Jacob and his family and those around them, and also what the cure for those tendencies actually is. So today, and this is a really cheery title in front of you, we're going to talk about idolatry, its causes, its consequences, and the cure for it. So Genesis 34, I believe, reveals that to us in clear fashion. So let's read together the entire chapter. We'll take some time to talk about what God has for us here in his word. So this is God's word. Genesis 34, beginning in verse 1, down through the end of the chapter. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. And take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. 
Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate to his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? May God instruct us through his word. Let's pray briefly. Holy Spirit, now in the hearts of your people, Apply the truth of your eternal word to us that we might see ourselves, that we might turn to faith in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, and find hope for change and restoration. Holy Spirit, for those who may be listening today who have not yet trusted Jesus and are trusting and establishing their own righteousness, may they see their inability to do that and may they turn to him as their only hope. I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This text demonstrates to us that sin breeds sin, and it's hard to stop its momentum. Israel needed to be reminded of their destructive propensities, their tendencies. When Moses wrote these things down several hundred years later, He wanted the people that he led to understand who they were, why they did the things that they did, to warn them to not continue down destructive paths, to understand that if they did, they would make a mess of everything just like their forefathers had done. Israel needed to know that their forefathers often felt like their existence that it hung by a thread. Israel would experience this themselves when they were chased by Pharaoh's army and their back was against the Red Sea, when they ran out of food and water, when they were punished for their sin, they felt like their existence as a nation hung by a thread. But Moses also wanted Israel to know that there was hope for them that they did not have to continue in the path of sin, that they could trust God whenever everything around them felt very fragile, that there was hope, that God was faithful and redemption was coming. And brothers and sisters, today we are much the same. It does us no good to ignore the fact that we have sinful tendencies. We must see who we are. We must learn to think carefully about why we do what we do 
And we must be very careful to understand that sin has consequences. Like Israel, we often feel like our lives hang by a thread, financially, relationally, physically. Where do we turn when life seems so fragile? And where is our hope? Is it in religious exercise? Is it in being good people? Or is there something or someone to whom we can look objectively who will never leave us or forsake us? This text shows us these things and so much more. The first thing I want us to see today is very simple, but it's profound and it's important for us to talk about as difficult as it is. That is this. Sex is a gift from God, but it can be perverted And when perverted, it leads to destructive consequences. God has made us to be sexual beings. Now, I recognize that not everyone here today is married or even close to being ready for marriage, but a lot of us are. And even those of us who aren't are being faced with the realities that our world is a world that is hypersexualized. I'm not that old, but things have changed a lot and the overtness of uh, sexual charged media. Things have changed a lot in how open it is to all of us. But the reality is, as open as it may be today, the reality is that we don't live in a leave-it-to-beaver, father-knows-best culture anymore. These things were always under the surface. Our culture, especially in the West, goes through sort of shifts where from time to time we become more austere. We tend to keep things a bit under wraps more and more, but the reality is whether we appear to be conservative and have conservative values or not, our world has been hypersexualized since the fall. And Shechem, the son of Hamor, Jacob's neighbor, is a perfect example of this. Sex is not bad. Sex is a gift from God, and we'll see that in God's Word in just a few moments. But Shechem took something that was good, something that was beautiful, something that was to be understood as a gift, and he made it into something dirty. Shechem turned into an abuser. Shechem used sex as a powerful tool to subdue Dinah and make her his own selfishly. And as we see the story unfold, he was not sorry for it. He wanted her to be his wife, but even that seems to ring a bit hollow. I was reading a good commentary, which is a book that helps explain the Bible, this week in preparation for my teaching time today. And though the commentator was saying that what Shechem did was awful, it sort of at the same time said, well, he wasn't that bad, Because he did really love her after all. I don't think that's what Moses is saying here. I don't think Moses is applauding Shechem for suddenly coming to his senses and saying, I've done wrong, now I've got to make this girl my wife and I'll love her forever. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think he was twisted by his sin and I think he was justifying it. And the reason I think that is that because one of the most surprising things about ministry for me, vocational ministry, is how many people, especially women, that my wife and I have had the opportunity and privilege to help through the years who have been sexually abused, often as young women and sometimes later. 
I did not expect that. You expect whenever you step into a sanitized evangelical culture that everything's sort of rosy. Everybody grew up in Sunday school and wore their dresses and their salmon Libby shoes. I should got a little laugh out of some of you ladies. I remember. And that was Sunday school, right? And everything was perfect and right. And then you went to church and did your thing. And a lot of you grew up in Christian schools or homeschooling and everything was kind of protected. But often not, right? For a lot of you, that was a facade. Some of you didn't grow up like that at all. There was no influence of Jesus seemingly whatsoever in your home at all. And fathers and uncles and friends took advantage of you. And to this day, the pain of that echoes. My heart breaks for you. And I know it is difficult if we take time through a text like this to even listen. But the reason that I think that we can say outright that Shechem was awful and evil and guilty is because this sin was one of the worst. It was heinous. And he demonstrates zero repentance in this text. I want to talk more to those of you who have gone through such things and to those of you who help such people, dear sisters and brothers, in a few moments. Why is illicit sexual experience so alluring? Why was Shechem so drawn to this? And why does it resonate with us, if we're being honest? Some of you have pretty rosy pasts, like, like for real. Like you made it all the way through middle school and high school and college with very little sexual failure. Some of you did. Most of us didn't. Most of us have sexual regrets in our past of one sort or another. Why did we fall and why do we still? Chances are that someone today is listening who is addicted to pornography. Probably. It could be that Someone today is listening is involved in some other sort of sexual sin. So I speak to you, not harshly, but as one who has failed himself and one who speaks to you pleading with you to consider the truths of God's word and the consequences that it is putting in front of us. Why did we or why do we struggle so much with sexual experience? Why? Well, it's pretty much like everything else. Satan has taken something really good, something that is holy, and he's warped it. It is natural for men and for women to have sexual desire for one another. And God has given us marriage to be the relationship in which those sexual desires, which are holy and good, are experienced and enjoyed. There is an entire book of the Bible about relational love, and a lot of it is about sex. Song of Solomon, if you're wondering what I'm talking about. That's what it is. I don't think Song of Solomon is about God's love for his people. I don't think it's about Jesus' love for his church. It's way too hard to read that into the text. It's about romance. Why did God put that in there? Because romance is good and sex is good. Sexual intimacy with one's spouse is a unique, physical, and emotional expression of love. There's nothing quite like it. It's not the only part of marriage for those of you who are considering marriage sooner in the future. There's a lot more to it but it's special. But because Satan opposes God, he tweaks our natural, God-given desires for sexual intimacy, and he makes it something ugly, self-serving, and dirty. And in this case, very destructive. He does this with other things too, not just sex. He does it with food. 
Food's wonderful. Food can destroy us. It does it with money. Money's a great tool, but money can control us. It does it with our relationships. Relationships are important, and your marriage with your children, but relationships are not the ultimate thing. He can do this with other things that are more subtle, like ministry, like how you teach and where you serve. Satan can take anything good and holy and tweak it a few degrees and turn it into an idol. The problem is, even after we have come to Christ, our flesh, this thing that remains, that that is not yet fully rescued until Jesus comes and removes that from us, that's still magnetized to the world. We We don't have to give in to the flesh. The power of sin has been broken for us who have trusted Jesus, those of us who have been united to him in faith, but, but our flesh is still there and we are magnetized to sin. The flesh is in opposition to God. It's vulnerable and it's open to temptation and Satan in his great cunning knows how to tweak our flesh at its vulnerable points. That's different for each of us in different ways. The sins that one of you commit, that I commit, might be different than your neighbor or your brother or your sister. But brothers and sisters, if you are here today and you are breathing, you have this thing called the flesh and Satan knows how to get at you. And sex is one of the vulnerable points that almost all of us are very open to being attacked at. But we see that not only was Shechem hurting himself, he was hurting other people. His sin led to destructive consequences. I have been around long enough now to have helped a number of people through sexual sin, whether it be media or actual relationships. And I find that very often the reasons behind the sin are sort of subtle and missed. I have a friend who is no longer a pastor, and this just happened recently, who I've known for a long time, ministered alongside in various contexts, who sent me an email at the turn of the year and said, I have um, had an illicit affair, I have cheated on my wife, and I have to step down from my church. And it broke my heart. I wept as soon as I got the email. Not out of anger, although legitimately some of that was there. I'm angry for what he did to his wife. I was angry for what he did to his church but also because I knew that he had set himself on a long road of restoration, of course, for his family as well. I saw subtle shifts in him over time. I saw him getting bored. I saw him becoming increasingly more prideful and not content with the success, so to speak, that God was giving him in his church. And because he stopped finding his joy in God, he turned to other things. It was subtle. I've seen this again and again as I've helped men, especially through sexual struggles. Be careful. I don't know exactly why Shechem did what he did here. I know that he was sinful. We can say that. But what is it that trips us up in the past or today? It can be something as subtle as boredom. It can be something even more subtle like we no longer find Jesus to actually be satisfying. And the reality is, God made you and God made me to be pleasure seekers. That is not bad. The seeking of pleasure is not bad. And one of the worst things that we can do in encouraging discipleship among our people is to tell you to try to to keep that suppressed. It won't work. 
It'll just keep popping up around the cracks in your fingers as you try to push it down. You cannot keep yourself from seeking pleasure. Can't. Jesus made you in his image to be a pleasure seeker. The reality is for those of us who have come to him in faith, who are experiencing his restoration, the renewal of his image in us is that we are to find once again pleasure in him. And that's ultimate pleasure. One of the reasons why it's so difficult for us to conceive of the eternal state, like the new heavens and earth where heaven comes down like a city, like a new Jerusalem to earth, like the capital where Jesus reigns and we get to like fly around and hang out on the mountains and wear robes. I don't know what all it's going to look like. We're conjecturing a little bit. The reason for some of us that doesn't look very enticing is because some of the things that we really enjoy now, we, we know aren't going to be there, like sex and marriage. But in the eternal state, when everything is perfect again, like even better than Eden where there was marriage and sex, the eternal state's going to be even better than that. How can it be that, that we're looking forward to a time where there is no marriage and is no sex and find any pleasure in it? Because God has something more for us than just marriage or sex or food or anything else. Those things are gifts. They are to be enjoyed in the here and now. But we better be careful in the here and now because while we do have these gifts and they have been given to us to enjoy them, they are not the ultimate thing. Because one day there is coming an age where they won't even be there and we will be the happiest we could ever be. More happy than we can even care to imagine now. That's coming. But be on guard, brothers and sisters, because your boredom with God, your lack of conviction that He alone can meet the deepest desires of your thrill-seeking souls, He can. But if you are not pursuing that on a consistent basis, do not be surprised if sexual sin or something else creeps into your heart and destroys not only you, but those around you. I warn you today. It's easy if those of us who have gone through this life have had plenty of sexual failure or if we have been abused sexually to hate sex. But in Hebrews chapter 13, the writer of the epistle says to us, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. James is, or the writer of Hebrews is saying two things there. Sex is good, but be careful mentioned to you. Song of Solomon is a place where, where relational intimacy, even physical intimacy, is, is celebrated. Proverbs chapters 5-7 through seven is another place where sexual intimacy with your spouse is, is celebrated, but there are dire warnings there as well. If you are struggling through sexual sin today, I encourage you to come get help. Rarely, rarely is a person who is caught in such sins able to extract themselves on their own. It just doesn't happen. Come get help. We will not judge you. We will love you. We have failed to. We will love you, but we don't want you to destroy yourself. We don't want you to destroy those around you. If you have been abused in the past, and we will talk more about this in a few moments, and you need help, and we don't know about it, we, we will help you. We will always do that here. Where does our idolatry begin? It begins in our hearts. James says in the first chapter of his epistle, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, 
when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I warn you with love today, please be careful. We must be on guard. Our flesh is weak. Jesus told the disciples this in Matthew 26 when he said, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You need help. You need Jesus. Sex is a gift from God, but can be perverted and lead to destructive consequences. But that's not the only sin here. I said to you at the beginning that seed breeds sin. Sin breeds sin. And the second thing that we see in this text is that the desire for justice against wrongdoing is right and good, but can become consuming and dangerous. Jacob was upset But his sons were incensed. They were enraged, and rightly so. Their desire for justice against Shechem was just. It was right, and it was good. But the way that they carried out was not good. They went too far. It consumed them, and they justified their anger and their murderous plot. In fact, they went so far as to sort of trample on the gift of circumcision. Circumcision was given as a gift to demonstrate this relationship between God and men, that that their hearts were symbolically being pictured in circumcision as being open to God, these his covenant people, that sin had been removed and they had this open relationship with him. That was a gift. And marriage was a gift. Within the covenant family, they were to marry carefully so they didn't marry someone who didn't love the one true God. But Jacob's sons are so enraged that they hatch a plot. And they say to Shechem and his family, if you'll be circumcised and become like one of us, then we'll take some of your daughters as our wives and we'll give you some of ours to be your wives and we'll have this sort of collective, collaborative tribe together. But they had no intentions of carrying this out. They sort of trampled on the sanctity of circumcision and the sanctity of marriage. And then when Shechem and his father got the men of the city to agree to this, subversively so, because they, what they really wanted was to take all of Jacob's family's stuff. They thought that if they intermarried, they could win them over. Then we see Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, coming in and slaying all the men while they were recovering from their self-inflicted circumcision. But not only this, Jacob's sons came and pillaged dead bodies, killed all the men, took their wives and their children and all their stuff. They, they went too far. This text demonstrates to us that when sin gains momentum, it's hard to stop it. This text demonstrates to us that when sin starts, you are often dealing with its consequences many years later. So again, I speak to those who have been hurt by others, especially women here today who were hurt by men. You still feel this today, very many of you. It has affected your marriages. It has affected your relationships. It has affected the way that you look at male authority. I know that. I say to you men today, something very similar that I tell my sons all the time, though in a more discreet way. God has put you here for a number of reasons, men. But one of the most important reasons that God has put you on this planet is to take care of women. When I see my sons 
joking with their mom in a way that's inappropriate, and I, I mean being too sarcastic, I stop them. Because I want them to learn early on that you don't talk to women that way. We teach our boys to open doors. We teach our boys to be very careful with their friends that are girls. Because I want them whenever they're in middle school and high school and in college and choosing a spouse and loving their wives and raising daughters to understand that they are protectors. God has given men more strength physically, often emotionally, and we are to use that strength not to abuse and not to harm, but to protect and envelop and enfold. And I see you men doing that, and I love you for it. And may God continue to produce that fruit in us. But we see the the disintegrating nature of sin, how it started tearing the fabric of their relationships apart, and, and then they went and did what they did. We love movies about retribution, right? Like, like I could name a bunch of them to you today, and you, know, you probably have seen a lot of them, where, where like, there's this guy, and maybe whenever he was like six, he was abandoned by his dad, and he was, uh, he was brought into like um, this sensei's home, and the sensei taught him like the most elite kind of kung fu ever. And, and then he went to like Harvard, and um, then he was a, recruited like sort of covertly by the CIA into like a black ops group that doesn't even exist on paper, and he's like a human killing machine. And then he spends like 20 years in the CIA or whatever, and then he settles down, and he has a wife, and he has children, and somebody like kidnaps his daughter or kills his wife. There's lots of movies like this. We like movies like this. And, and then something happens terribly to one of his loved ones, and then all the old things kick back in, like the kung fu kicks back in, and somehow you, he goes to like an off-site storage facility where just in case anything ever arose, he's kept like 3,000 pistols and, and like double-edged swords, and he's got like a Humvee which has armor plating, and the best ones are not the ones where the guy is like kind of beat by the end but somehow kills the bad guy. The best ones are where he never even gets touched. Like, like he has a little scratch on his chin by the end, but he has killed like 300 people. And you're glad for it because, because after all, somebody in his family was hurt. And there's something in us that kind of revels at that. How do, we, how do we deal with those emotions? On the one hand, retribution's good. On the one hand, justice is good because, because God is righteous and God is just and God will punish sin. But we feel sometimes, if we're being honest, that that can really go bad places. Most of us do not have storage sheds full of Glocks. Most of us did not grow up in a sensei's dojo and have the ability to hurt those who hurt us. But a lot of us have vengeful tendencies. It is good and right, brothers and sisters, to, to want justice for those who have done wrong. Please hear me today, and I want to say it again. It is right and it is good to desire that those who have done wrong be brought to justice. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment in more detail. But we have to be careful that those emotions do not go too far. And that's what Simeon and Levi did. In fact, we know this because later on in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is about to die and he's giving out the inheritance to his sons and sort of partitioning it out, Reuben won't get it, the firstborn, because he's going to do something really bad. We'll see that. Simeon and Levi won't get it because they did what we see here in this text. They were murderous. It's going to fall to the fourth son, Judah, which we will talk about in a few moments. 
What was done here was wrong. The desire for justice was right, was understandable, but it was the meeting out, it was the dispensing of the justice that went wrong. God has left the church, at least in part, because the church has been given the authority to discipline those who sin and persist in sin who will not repent. The church has the responsibility to put them out of the church. God has given the church authority for that. It's one of the reasons that if you have been hurt, we are here to help you and we will take care of you. The state has also been given power and authority. What Jacob should have done is hard for us to determine. What should he have done? There wasn't a court system then. He was a sojourner in the land, and he was few in number and compared to Hamor's family. Was Jacob being cowardly here? Should he have acted before the sons came in? Their indignation, their anger was justified. We, we, feel, we feel good about their anger. We don't feel good about the way that they display that anger. What should Jacob have done? Some great commentators in the past, like Luther and Calvin, say that Jacob was so overcome with grief that he couldn't act. Maybe so. I don't know exactly what Jacob should have done. I do know that Jacob should have stood up for his daughter. We don't know all that happened behind the scenes. Perhaps in some ways there was some sort of family conference and he agreed that justice should be meted out. We don't know everything because the story doesn't fill in all the gaps for us. But though we can't exactly say what Jacob should have done in this case, in this culture, we can say today that whenever such heinous things happen, we have to act. The church must act when such sins are committed. And we must act by going to the state occasionally. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Romans chapter 13. This might feel a little bit like a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's important because we don't always cross texts like this. And I think it's important for us to think comprehensively through the text itself and its implications. So if you don't mind, turn with me quickly to Romans chapter 13. I want to talk about what the church should do, what we should do whenever such sins are committed. It's interesting that the Bible actually gives us some answers. So the church is to act, carefully calling offenders to repentance, but the church has another recourse, and that is to go to the state. Paul speaks of this in verses 1 through 7 of Romans 13. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. I'll stop reading there. God has given authority to the church, but God has given authority to the state. And that is why when sexual sin, especially abuse, has occurred, that the church does not handle it internally, but it turns it over to the state. Because the state has been given authority, and despite the frailty and problems in our own government, there is a lot of good there too for which we can be thankful our legal system has been set up to help those who have been hurt. That is why we are mandatory reporters in a church like ours. If we even hear the whiff of sexual abuse, we don't handle it in the elder board. We go to the police. Now, the elder board may come back along in the backside and deal with the abuser. Of course, we would. 
but we have to make sure that proper procedures are put in place. And again, you may think this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but some of you have gone through this in the past, and you need to know that we will do the right thing here. And you need to know that there are reasons why these things have been set up. God put them there for good and for your protection. I don't know exactly what Jacob should have done, but I know what we would do if any such thing occurred here. End of rabbit trail. Paul says in the chapter prior to Romans 13, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What if the church gets it wrong and doesn't handle it rightly? That happens sometimes. And if you watch the news, you've seen plenty of examples of that. What happens when the state doesn't get it right? And they don't always get it right. Jesus will make it right. One day he will, and you can trust him. So, this text says some difficult things to us. Sex is a gift from God, but can be perverted and lead to destructive consequences. And because of the ripple effects of Shechem's sin, we find that the desire for justice against wrongdoing is right and good. Simeon and Levi had right, right feelings, but their actions were consuming and dangerous. But I don't want to end on those really dark notes. There's some good stuff here. And the last thing is this. This is a bit implied, but I think we can see it in the text as well. Only Jesus, the promised seed, can rescue us and redeem our desires. Sex is a good desire. The desire for justice, that's a good desire. But left to ourselves, apart from our Creator, those desires will destroy us. What can redeem the desires? By what means can those desires be harnessed for good rather than for evil? Only Jesus can do that. We've got to be careful as we move through a book like Genesis that we do not lose the forest for the trees. So today we have to talk about sexual sin. Today we have to talk about, about wrathful justice. But let's blow back outward a bit and get a bird's eye view. What's going on here in Genesis 34? Why is Jacob's family even here? Jacob's family is here because God made promises to his grandfather that through him and through his seed he would build a nation that he would not only bless that nation but through them would bless the whole world. Not because the Jewish people would be industrious or smart or philanthropic but that through the Jewish people he would send a Messiah the promised redeemer of Genesis chapter 3, who would crush the head of the serpent and bring renewal to his people. Jacob's family anticipated the fulfillment of God's redemptive promises. Why is Jacob so upset at the end of the chapter? Because he's afraid they'll be wiped out. And if they're wiped out, the redemptive promises will not be fulfilled. But as we find as we go on, they weren't wiped out. They weren't wiped out at all in the book of Genesis, even when worse things happened that we will talk about in weeks to come. And Israel would not be wiped out when Moses wrote these things down. He wanted them to know that God would keep his promises to send redemption. And Jacob was not the hope of the world. Clearly, Simeon and Levi were not the hope of the world. But it is interesting that as you come to Genesis 49, which I've already referenced today, 
that the lion's share of the inheritance, the birthright, passes through the first three sons and goes to the fourth one. And his name would be Judah. Judah would eventually have a great-great-great-great-grandson further down the line even than that called David. David was a great king, but David was an adulterer, and David was a murderer. He would have a great son. Perhaps no one has ever been quite as wise or as wealthy as Solomon. But Solomon turned into a massive idolater. It would not be David, it would not be Solomon, the offspring of Judah, but there would come one eventually, hundreds of years later. He would be born to a young virgin girl in the city of Bethlehem, and he would grow into a man raised in obscurity who would offer himself up as a free gift to the world, who would keep all of God's laws, where Solomon and David, the offspring of Judah, did not, where Judah himself did not, where Jacob and his other sons did not, and he would fulfill all the promises of Genesis chapter 3. You see, that's why this story is here, to show that God keeps his promises even to sinners, and he would bring redemption. He would not stop his promises. God's promises are unstoppable. And the story suggests to us that though we must pay attention to its details, ugly and dirty though they may be, our eyes must be lifted up to the bigger picture, that despite how sinful these people are, God would not cease to keep his promises. He would bring redemption. Jesus would come through these dirty, destructive people to us, dirty and destructive people, and offer us himself. Jesus would live a perfect life, rejecting sinful temptation, obeying his Father in any way, tempted like us, yet without sin. Because of this, he could be an acceptable substitute, able to offer himself as a righteous substitute. And if we will trust him by the free gift of faith, we might be pardoned and we might be renewed. So I call you today, brother or sister, if you have not yet trusted Jesus, to do so today, find in him your pardon and your hope for renewal. But I say to you, brother or sister, if you have trusted him, you must trust him again every single day. He is the only one who can take your God-given desires and redeem them and renew them and harness them for good rather than for evil. This text is dark. It demonstrates to us the destructive, powerful attraction of our idols. But it also suggests to us that behind the scenes, God was doing something huge. That is, to bring redemption to those who desperately needed it, and he offers it to us today. So because most of you, I know, have trusted Jesus, I call you once again to turn to him in prayerful dependence, feeding on his word abiding in Him, helping one another through your struggles and pointing one another back to Christ. Brothers and sisters, the desires you have very often are not bad, but they must be harnessed by the one who alone can make you new. If your desires are overtaking you and leading to destruction, whether that destruction is known yet or not, I call you to repentance today and I call you to trust Jesus. So, the gospel is for our initial justification to pass from death to life, to gain pardon from God because we're guilty. But the gospel is for every day. And I call each of you to repent, to turn to Jesus.
and to trust him by faith. And he will never fail you because he is God's best promise and gift to us. Let's pray.